Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author, but I also am director of the Centre. And today it is a really great pleasure to say that we have a special guest. Her name is Holly Ordway. Now, Holly first came to my attention um, because she has written this splendid book called Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. And that's what we're going to be spending our time talking about today. But before we do that, Holly, why don't you introduce yourself and say what you get up to in your day job? (laughs) Well, thank you, Julia. And it's just a pleasure to uh, to be on your podcast so uh, obviously I'm a writer, um, the Tolkien's Modern Reading, one of my books. Uh, I work for the Word on Fire Institute, where I'm the Fellow of Faith and Culture. So basically I'm, I have the great blessing of being a full-time writer, speaker. Um, I also cultivate uh, writing groups within the Word on Fire Institute. So teaching creative writing is a really important part of, of my work. And I'm also a visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University, which has a Master of Arts in cultural apologetics that that I've been involved with for for many years. So sort of a mix of apologetics, presenting the Christian faith, um, teaching people how to do that graciously and well, especially through culture and the arts and the imagination is one strand of my work. And then the other strand of my work, um, really quite a major, more of the strand, probably major part of my work is as a Tolkien scholar, um, working, you know, more and more biographically on Tolkien, um, the results of which, one of which is Tolkien's modern reading, which we're discussing now, and then um, a book that will be coming out uh, later this summer called Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography, which we're not going to talk about today, but I just mentioned to uh, pique the interest of your uh, of your listeners. Yeah, because we are hopefully going to talk about that uh, later in the year. So, Holly, um, thinking about Tolkien and the word modern, that isn't the first word most of us go for because we have all, well, most of the people listening to this will have followed the usual story, which is Tolkien was very keen on Icelandic stories and medieval stories like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, Old English stories like Beowulf and so on. And it's very hard to imagine him being interested in anything, say, you know, even Shakespeare seems a bit too, a bit too soon <laughs> for Tolkien. But the really enjoyable thing for me reading your book um, was 
it was like an enormous box of chocolates that I opened and I could just eat. I had to stop myself bolting it all down in one go Um, because you've made a very convincing case for the fact that Tolkien was a reader. And that didn't mean that his interests stopped back in with the what he taught academically. It's a sort of a, a wrong association. So as there is such a lot in this book, and I really would recommend people just go and buy the book. We're not going to cover everything at all in this podcast, but I thought we'd break it down into several groups of things that you have traced um, through to his later work. So if, you, if you're happy, what we'll do is we'll start with the things that he read as a child. So let's work out when that is. Uh, Tolkien is born right at the end of the Victorian era. So what kind of things was Tolkien, the little boy, little boy in short trousers, what was he uh, reading? And what was it that from that reading that he carried forward into writing The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, The Silmarillion? Well, this is such a big, such a big question, yeah. obviously, um, a, a book, a book length question, as you know. So we'll just, we're just going to give little, little tidbits of, of, uh, of, of information here. So he was a reader all his life. And in a sense, this seems almost inescapable given his, his, his great literary gifts, his, his great talent for, for communicating these wonderful stories you know, that's something that surely must have been drawn from a lifetime of reading. And it was. Um, but it is amazing how easy it is to to lose track of that as we move into looking at his his professional life. Uh, and the, one of the things that I discovered in researching Tolkien's modern reading is that these things are both true. It's not an either or. He definitely did have a massive professional knowledge and interest in medieval literature and the sagas. Um, quite possibly that is the most important influence on his writing. Uh, this is all true, and there's been a lot of great scholarship on it. Um, but because that's true doesn't mean that it isn't also true that he read so many things that were that were modern. Um, and I just wanted to know at the beginning that this was such a voyage of discovery for me to write Tolkien's modern reading, because I also started out when I began the, the epic voyage of writing this book, <laughs> Thinking exactly the same thing as you mentioned, that surely, you know, surely he he was just exclusively or mainly interested in medieval literature. But I always had this sort of nagging question of, you know, well, he, he, he was growing up and had his adult life in a time when there was a lot of really interesting fantasy being written. Did he know about any of it or was he just oblivious? I was just curious and there didn't seem to be any good scholarship on that subject. And then it started also nagging at me, the Lord of the Rings is so compelling to modern audiences. How how could this be written by a man who was only imaginatively nurtured by medieval literature? This doesn't this isn't quite track. And so that set me off on this this project of of tracing his reading and discovering, oh wow, <laughs> he actually read quite a lot through his whole life. And that makes so much better sense of the way that his creative imagination um, was formed. And of course, to get back to your your question, that started when he was a boy. So some of the things that he enjoyed then um, included Andrew Lang's um, fairy tales. So he read the, the, the colored fairy books. The red fairy book was a particular favorite um, that he notes. 
um, he enjoyed, um, well, lots of you know, fairy tales in, in general. Um, he enjoyed lots of boys' own kind of adventures. Um, he loved H. Ryder Haggard, um, authors like that. Um, and so we can sort of see him getting a, a flavor of these adventure stories, these fantasy stories, uh, quite, quite early on. He also enjoyed the George MacDonald's tales, um, Princess and the Goblin, um, and his other, his other stories. Although that didn't, that enjoyment didn't last into his adult, his adult life later, much later, actually towards the end of his life, he became much more critical of, uh, of George MacDonald's approach, literary approach, a little, a little too allegorical for him, I think, but it certainly fed him imaginatively. And then as we move into him being a, you know, a young man, um, you know, he, he loved William Morris, for instance, and adventure writers like S.R. Crockett, but I don't want to just sort of recap the entire several chapters. Yes. Of yeah. So <laughs> as I said, there's so much to say that we could just pick out a couple of highlights uh, that might be of interest to our readership. And, and um, let's just pause a little bit about the boy's own adventure because um this was a sort of literature that was developed for boys at school that kind of age of boy um the idea was it was building young men for the empire so it's got a, a sort of quite a it's not a million miles away from kipling though kipling's more interesting uh when he takes it on um but you point out that the two books that he gave to the library at his old school, is that correct, are in this genre. And you do a wonderful, um, you read them so that we don't have to read them. <laughs> but you also look at the difference between the treatment of empire in these stories and Tolkien's own writing. And I thought that was a particularly interesting you know, I love that part of your story, your book. So would you mind just filling in a couple of details about that to explain what I mean about he takes empire differently. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the fruits of doing this particular project. I set myself out not just to identify the titles that Tolkien knew or had read, but insofar as it was possible to read them all, um, as you said, sometimes so that you don't have to dear reader and sometimes so that you might want to, because yeah. It, yeah. Um, but in the case of the boy's own adventure, um, well, we live in a in a time where culturally we're much more sensitive to racism um, and you know anti-Semitism and very rightly so, and so much so that we can you know we're very sensitive to seeing it. It can be a bit shocking to read something um, of that era where you need have almost no sensibility whatsoever to notice how utterly racist it is. Mm. It, it is it isn't hiding. It it comes out and it whacks you in the head with just horrific statements I don't even want to quote, um, you know, mm. it, it's sort of a default assumption that anybody with, with brown skin was somehow, you know, subhuman, or at least not really, not really worth considering. Um, not all of the boys on adventures were that way. Um, but it was certainly much more common than, well, it was extremely common. Um, and so much so that it was, you know, you just kind of have to accept that it's there. You're going to have to encounter it when you read um, these stories. And there's also a very strong sense of, yes, of empire that, you know, the, the British people are going to go out and have this empire and that it is unambiguously good. Now, of course, empire is neither unambiguously good nor unambiguously bad. It's as complex as the people who are, who are living it out. 
Um, but there's definitely a sense in these stories that rah, rah, you know, for the empire, we are definitely the rightful rulers of, of the world. No questions asked. So then reading these um, and knowing that Tolkien read authors like Herbert Hayens, um, Alexander MacDonald, who wrote a particularly sort of racist um, story set in the outback, realizing then that he differed from these. He made a, a definitely a conscious shift away from these toxic elements. And I think that that's re that was really illuminating for me. Um, he, you know, growing up in this culture, he could easily have taken a lot of these assumptions on board without himself being consciously racist, but still appropriating m these tropes and these images. And by and large, he rejects them. Um, now, there are one or two unfortunate images that do make their way into the Lord of the Rings, which people will call attention to. But if you look back at the kind of literature that he grew up with, it's quite striking to see how thoroughly he has rejected that entire approach. For instance, in the Lord of the Rings, we've got the whole story of Ganbari Gan, the Aboriginal figure. Um, and if you look at some of the stories that he would have read when he was growing up, these were figures that would have been treated with contempt, ridicule, treated as subhuman. Um, you know, that would taking them as equals would not have been an imaginative possibility for someone like Haynes or MacDonald. In The Lord of the Rings, we have Theoden treating respectfully with Ganbury Gan, um, asking for his advice. Um, we see um Aomer being maybe a little bit, you know, possibly a little bit racist, like, well, what does he know? And and getting put down. Like, no, no, he's correct. And then I think most strikingly, the the wild men help them, you know, help the help the men of Rohan. And then when Aragorn is king and he comes, he comes back, he asks Ganbregan, what would you like? What do you what do you want? Um and of course Ganbregan's request is that he be allowed he and his people be allowed to live freely and not be hunted anymore like animals and this is granted and king you know king aragorn and king alessar grants them the, the the woods hi this is julia golding are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace, starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies, and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. But I think this is striking in that Tolkien is not glossing over racism in Middle-earth. He is acknowledging that the people of Rohan did behave in a racist manner toward the wild men. They used to hunt them. And it's a really subtle point that is often overlooked that Tolkien is is really challenging the kinds of boy's own tropes that he would have grown up with and saying, yeah, this is the sort of thing that happened. 
and it shouldn't have. And in Middle Earth, we're going to show that it happened and also show that it shouldn't have. And I think that's a really good example of the way that he's creatively engaging um, with some of these more difficult tropes from, from his boyhood reading. Yes, and you also get the wonderful moment when Faramir actually stops and says and thinks about the motive of the enemy, the South Southron, the fallen soldier. Um, and one of the things that you don't find in Boyd's own stories is much worry about what everyone else is thinking about your presence there. So, I mean, I think that's a... So I think it, you're right. Um, Tolkien is very advanced both in, in what he writes and in his, you know, his own personal reaction to people asking him about the origins of his name and all sorts of things. Um, so his advance for a man of his era it doesn't mean that he's, you know, fully signed up to what we would now expect, but let's give him a break. You know, he's, we're talking about pretty much 80 years ago. Um, so in his own context, his, his advance. Excellent. So um, of all of those stories that he read as a child, what do you think would be the one that he would point to as his his kind of favourite among them? Is it the fairy tales? Um, I'm not saying the one that influenced him most, because of course you can be influenced by something you don't like. You can be like, and you make that point, there can be the writing against something. But with C.S. Lewis, we get a clear sense where he sort of picks out a few books in Surprised by Joy, that these are the ones that, you know, lit my imagination. Is there something similar for Tolkien that people should perhaps actually go away and read and, and think about? Well, I think in terms of sparking his imagination, um, one author that he encounters a little, well, we don't know quite when he first encountered the full works of William Morris, but he encountered um, William Morris to a certain extent as a boy, because it's a retelling of the story of Sigurd in the Red Fairy book that comes from, from Morris. But then certainly by the time that he got to Oxford as an undergraduate, um, he was reading William Morris. Um, and these are these sort of adventures, these these prose romances in the in the medieval sense of the word, where Morris is taking, um, making new fantasy stories, sometimes set in fantasy worlds, and telling them in a ar deliberately archaic style, um, very distinctive um, archaic style. And Tolkien was absolutely knocked out by them. He read everything that William Morris uh, wrote, as, as far as I can tell. Uh, had something like eleven volumes of his of his works at, at one point, and we know we know that he was specifically influenced by several of them because he names them. And one of the ways this influences him is that he reads some of um, Morris's prose romances that mix verse and prose, and he even writes to to Edith that he's going to try that. And he does um, in some of his early um, Tales for the Legendarium. So we can see that you know, Tolkien himself is pointing out quite early on the way that he's inspired by another author's technique, in this case, Morris, to, to try something out. And if you look at the early stories of, say, The Fall of Gondolin, and you've read William Morris, you can absolutely see that he's, he's imitating, assimilating Morris's archaizing style, very, very archaic in language. And the interesting thing is that this disappears almost entirely by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings, because he's he's mastered the way that the way to use archaisms. Morris never did. Morris wasn't a linguist. Morris was just sort of making things up as he went along. Um, and it makes it, Morris is not terribly readable today. Um, 
he's he's a niche interest. Tolkien takes that influence and transforms it. He takes the idea of using archaic phrasing and then figures out how to do it in a way that is utterly natural. His characters only speak with the more archaic tones in moments that are appropriate, in moments of high emotion or high solemnity. And of course, it's balanced by the the naturalism of, of the hobbits. So again, we have a very interesting study of the way that we have a an important early influence that he takes up into his creative imagination, um, digests and and transforms. Yeah, it's interesting actually that William Morris, who again, I think we've we've had a myth maker um on him with Ingrid Hansen, who's a specialist on Morris. And um, so I'll put a link in the show notes, people want to listen, because he's such a complex character. But you would have said during his lifetime, people would have thought that his creative footprint was going to be about his prose writing and his poetry. But actually now it's probably more about his politics and his ascetic, the William Morris ascetic, which is incredibly powerful. And then if you don't know what it is, just Google it and you'll see, oh, yes, I do know what it is. So, um, yeah, absolutely fascinating figure. And because of his interest in Iceland and Icelandic stories, you could well see there's a lot of common ground between him and Tolkien. So moving forward, um, the contemporary era of children's book for him were obviously the um, 1930s and when he's late 20s, 1930s, when he's got his own family. And we know from the Father Christmas letters that he is an involved parent. He's creating stories for his children. He's reading to them. What of the current, more current generation of stories? So we're thinking Edwardian early 20s, would you say were the most notable ones for you to pick out as an influence? I'm thinking more of The Hobbit here, the way he decided to tell The Hobbit, I think, in the contemporary What's a Bedtime Story. Well, isn't it? Because one of the one of the specific influences that he notes for um, The Hobbit is is George MacDonald. So that's worth mm-hmm. noting. Although MacDonald is is in the Victorian era, but he notes MacDonald um, as, as a specific influence um, of the books of that era that were notable for The Hobbit, one is a charming book that is, I think, very difficult to find today called The Marvelous Land of Snurgs by the remarkably named E.A. Wick Smith. Um, and Snurgs are very Hobbit-like. Um, and Tolkien loved it. Um, and and his children loved it. So this is a uh, this is a book that was sort of feeding that that um, creative imagination um, of of that time. He also, as we go forward into the into the thirties, he was a great admirer of um, Arthur Ransom, the Swallows and Amazon series. And in fact, quite late in life, he had a he had a volume of Secret Water on his bookshelves. So he clearly retained an affection for it, um, even into his uh, his his late life. And the Ransom books were favorites of his children. But there were also books that he enjoyed, as we as we know from an absolutely charming exchange of letters that he had with with Ransom. Ransom wrote to him and uh, about the Hobbit, and pointed out that in the first edition he had had made some um, phrasings that seemed off because he called Bilbo a man at one point. He says that this he's a Hobbit, he's not a man. So why would you why would you call him that? And Tolkien could be 
prickly when when criticized, but he could also be very open to criticism when it was presented in a way that was clearly showing sympathy with his own with his own aims. And Ransom just hit the note perfectly. He writes as a humble hobbit fancier and 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 presents it as if it was just a scribal mistake, basically, uh, similar to how Lewis had had framed some of his own comments on, on Tolkien's work. And Tolkien responded um, enthusiastically, made the changes in the next printing of The Hobbits. So we have that greater consistency of phrasing, thanks to Ransom. Um, and they had a, just a delightful exchange of letters in which Tolkien expressed his appreciation for, for Ransom's writings. And these are books that are worth reading. They are still in print and they are very much worth reading. Um, I'm currently engaged in in reading them to my godchildren. Um, they're wonderful children's adventures, um, very wholesome ones. Um, no, you know, very well-drawn characters. Um, and interestingly, they're not fantasies for the most part. There's a couple that mm. have fantasies. But the main body of the story, Swallows and Amazon, Swallowdale, ones like that, Secret Water, they're stories of a family of children and their friends who go on holiday, admittedly with a freedom that seems fantastical to those of us who live in you know, <laughs> the 21st century. What? The parents just let them go off on an island and camp for a month? Um, but it was realistic for the time. And they have perfectly sort of ordinary adventures very well told, very engaging. And I think this is worth noting because Tolkien, as a writer, chose to work in the genre of fantasy. But that by no means indicates that he only enjoyed fantasy writing. Many of the children's authors that he enjoyed growing up were fantasists, as we've already been mentioning. But he also enjoyed more realistic stories, including more realistic children's stories like The Swallows and Amazons books. But what's interesting from the fantasy point of view in The Swallows and Amazons is you see the children creating the fantasy. So they they create characters themselves of pirates and they give ordinary people different names. So you watch the game being played. And I think that's very appealing. That's one of the reasons why they're such wonderful books, um, because it does feel absolutely in the mind of children on holiday. Uh, you know, is they're wonderful books. I agree with you. And the other thing, of course, about Ransom is uh, he did his own illustrations and drew his own maps, which, of course, Tolkien, I think he's a better, Tolkien's a better craftsman in that sense. But that example of an illustrator, a writer being his own illustrator, I think, was very encouraging. Um, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, just on the, um, the, the, the question of illustrations and maps, one of the things I love finding out from your book is about the Tolkien's aspirations for his own map based on um, the the map that he got from, you, you might be able to put your finger on the reference quicker than me, um, the, the pottery shirt that was created. Oh, yes, Haggard. Yes, he's one of the, he, he's one of the major influences, H. Ryder Haggard. Um, and uh, that's, that, that's the shirt of Aminardis, and I've got an image of it in my photo gallery. Um, this is, and that falls sort of into the category of Bowie's own adventure, um, but also gets an entire chapter of its own in in my I've book. Got the, I've got the picture here, so we can. Ah, there we go. Yes, there we go, everybody. That's the shard of Aminardis, and, and this is a. 
Yeah, this is a, a really fascinating instance of talking um, of, of genuine influence um, that we can trace. This is from um, a, a story by H. Ryder Haggard um, and an adventure story from the book She, 1887, which is a, a sort of a boy's own adventure with fantastic elements. Um, the, these these characters go off to Africa and they discover um, this basically immortal woman um, known as she who must be obeyed. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, they fall under her thrall and all that. And the shirt is, is the start of the story. It's the, it's the engine, the machine that starts everything going because it's got um, the story of, uh, of, um, of who she is and how she has affected um, this one particular family and this sort of quest for vengeance um, written on the shirt. Now, the interesting thing is that, Haggard didn't just invent this shirt for the story, but he manufactured an artifact, um, an actual pottery shirt, had it inscribed in, in Greek, marked it up. It's so realistic um, that he was. We showed it to some different people, and many of them, knowledgeable people, thought it was real, and then had it reproduced as an image in the frontispiece of of his book. Um, and it's currently in a museum, um, marked as a facsimile, fortunately. Um, but the shirt itself, as an artifact, is very important to the plot. But I think one of the things that captivated Tolkien's attention, and he mentions specifically, he mentions the shirt as something that interested him as a boy. It's an artifact that's extra textual, that adds this verisimilitude to the whole story. And that ultimately is what he does with the Book of Mazarbul, um, because we read about it in The Lord of the Rings, this this book with the blackened, um, you know, pages and the last, you know, the last words of the dwarves, the drums, the drums from the deep, they are coming. It's such a fantastic bit of the story. But he also created three pages from this book, um, which are now, uh, you can see them, they're at the, they're at the, uh, um, Haggerty Museum of Art at um, in uh, Marquette University in Wisconsin, and he very carefully crafted them. He poked little holes where the binding would be. He used different colors, and he he burnt the edges. They're incredibly detailed, and he went through various iterations of making them, um, ultimately hoping that they would be reproduced in the book, which they weren't, because it was too costly to do the. Uh, the um the, the printing in color but this idea of having an artifact outside the text that referred back to the text that in some way um supports the authenticity of the narrative as a has historical narrative which of course is tolkien's you know his his conceit in the lord of the rings that it's it's a history told by the hobbits well here's an artifact here's a page from the book of mazarbul and we can trace at least some of that inspiration to haggard and the shirt of Amanardus that we have um, in Xi. So as, as we were saying at the beginning, there is so much to say in all of these things, So we but we've got to keep moving on. So let's think about adult books uh, and their influence. Um, and we can enfold in here, of course, the works of the other Inklings too. Is there any particular ones that you'd pick out um, as being ones that Tolkien admired, not necessarily that he used as examples, but things that we know he was reading uh, that were part of that compost he was making for his own imagination. 
Yeah. I mean, in a way, I think the most striking thing is just the breadth of his reading. And one of the one of the things that I try to argue in Tolkien's modern reading, try to show, is that we we've really got to stop trying to find one to one influence mm. things. Sometimes we can find them, um, especially if Tolkien himself has identified the ones. Like we've just been talking about the Book of Mazarbul and the Shirt of Amenartas. That there's a very clear and strong connection there. Similarly, with Morris and some of his his experiments with language and and, and style. Even with those, though, we can never say that because there is this connection, there are therefore no other connections. It's always multiple influences can be feeding into the same, you know, the same scene even can have multiple influences of different authors. But I think even more than that, as we look at the breadth of his reading, um, you know, he he read, he read, um, Everyone from E.M. Forster to um, James Joyce, uh, you know, Chesterton, Belloc, um, you know, all sorts of, you know, Catholics, non-Catholics, atheists like H.G. Wells, Noah Stapledon. Um, he didn't like all of them, but he liked many of them. He called H.G. Wells an old master um, of science fiction. And it's this diversity of reading that. I think is most striking that he read so, so widely. And I think his interest in science fiction was one that particularly struck me. Um, he names, for instance, Isaac Asimov as a favorite author. Sadly, he doesn't give any specific titles, but I was able to trace through a very early use of the word robot um, before it was commonly used in, in, in um, regular usage. I think he had read Asimov's robot stories quite early because he used to read the American science fiction magazines. Um, and this, again, we don't have time to talk about all this. But it points to a much more nuanced attitude about technology than people usually think that the Tolkien had. I, I gave a whole chapter to that. But mostly I think, you know, I've got, I've got a whole chapter on, on um, his, his Catholic taste, meaning his, his broadly ranging taste. And I think that is is really notable. You know, he, he read poets like, like Tennyson, um, in all sorts of poets. Um, so I, I could go on more names, but I think it's the breadth of his, of his adult reading that is particularly striking. Yeah. And I think, as you said, that the, the fact that he read Westerns and he read, uh, the golden age murder mysteries, he was particularly admiring of Agatha Christie, wasn't yes, he? And I find that just delightful. Um, and uh, and interestingly, that in a way clears up something that is uh, often quoted. He's he has a quite cantankerous remark about Dorothy Sayers in the letters about how he couldn't stand um, the later Lord Peter mysteries when Harriet Vane um, is involved, um, and he can be quite sort of cranky when he's when he when he's saying these things. But he often is very hyperbolic in the way he expresses things. But it's interesting to note that he he notes that he had read the Lord Peter Whimsey novels from the beginning. So he had been reading them all while he read them all. Um, and so he couldn't have hated the last one so much because Harriet Vane comes in, you know, in, in Strong Poison and she shows up the next two. He read them all. He, he obviously had enough of an interest to, to keep reading. He preferred the earlier ones. Well, what's different about the earlier ones? Well, they're more puzzle-like. They're more purely about the detection and the mystery, whereas later Sayer shifts to more um, psychological and sort of interested in the relationship between between Peter and Harriet. 
they're, they're quite different, the early ones and the later ones. It's a, it's a difference of taste. But interestingly, this ties in to the fact that he also, he didn't care for Chesterton's Father Brown stories. He liked, he loved many of other Chesterton stories, including the Flying Inn and things like that. Did not care for the Father Brown stories. Those are much more psychological. They're not really about the plot. And what, who's his favorite mystery writer? Agatha Christie, who is a good study of character, but her her strength is in her clever plotting. So this just shows what what's his preference for mystery story, a good clever plot. So he's not really sliding sayers. He's just indicating the kind of mystery story that he likes is plot centered rather than character centered. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not sure about that because I, I read that art, that comment on Dorothy L. Sayers and I'm actually reading a lot of Dorothy L. Sayers at the moment. Having started at the, by chance, I started at the other end, at the last one, because it was the one in the house. Um, and the thing about the ones of Harriet Vane is that the point of view switches to Harriet Vane and it becomes quite a feminine story. So Gordy Knight, for example, which many regard as one of her best novels, Lord Peter Wimsey doesn't actually turn up until two thirds of the way through, halfway through. Um, and I just wonder if the fact that Dorothy L says is shifting to a female viewpoint and basically it's about female friendships, female academics, um, the establishment of a women's college, the way it's accepted or not accepted in Oxford. I just wondered if some of those things were pressing on nerves for him because there is, it's not lovey-dovey. It's not, Actually, it's not a romance in the conventional sense at all. It's definitely got more psychological exploration. And then turning back to Agatha Christie, she isn't as simplistic as people think. Depends which story you read. So something like The Hollow, again, the um, it's a Poirot story. Poirot doesn't turn up till quite a long way in. And it's actually a very interesting psychological examination of a lot of different suspects with this idea of the hollow as a sort of image resonating through. So I think they're both much better interesting writers. And I I just think perhaps, I don't know, I think that maybe Tolkien is missing some of the things that Dorothy L. Sayers is trying to do. He's not her best reader. He's not. Well, that's, you know, that's that certainly could be could be the case. And again, we shouldn't read too much into yeah, a comment. But I will note, though, that the reasons that you gave why Gaudy Knight might possibly press on nerves, I would argue, are reasons why he ought to have liked it. Yeah, because, well. <laughs> Tolkien was, this is not as well known as it should be. Tolkien was a firm supporter of women's education. Um, he he uh, was a, a tutor for the women's colleges very early on and was particularly well-liked by them. He didn't just do it because he had to. It was it was convenient that with Edith at home, he could have students at his house without needing an extra chaperone, because at the time, women students were chaperoned. Um, but reports from the students themselves, as I've read in you know various college books, were all favorable. They liked him. They felt that he respected the women students. He gave them a really a fair shake, which sadly, some of his, his other colleagues didn't. His daughter Priscilla recalled that he was always 100% supportive of her education, made no differences between her and her brothers in terms of her going to Oxford. 
and noted that he was he was very fond of Lady Margaret Hall, where where she went. He knew um, the head the the headmistress there, and he had a number of very good friends in the English faculty who were women, such as Dorothy Everett, who was a co-founder of the Cave, which was a co-educational um, literary club. And that the Cave doesn't get much press because everyone thinks about the Inklings, which is only men. But Tolkien was also a co-founder of a men and women's mixed club that gets no attention <laughs> because it doesn't fit the narrative, right? Um, so I think that whatever reasons he had for not caring for Gaudy Knight, it wouldn't have been because he was irritated about the the idea of of women's education or 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 women's opportunities, because insofar as we can see how he actually supported women students, he would have been for it rather than against it. He could have been irritated by Harriet. I find Harriet a little annoying at times myself. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's possible. I was actually meaning more that it was giving Oxford a bit of a bad press <laughs> in it because it makes it feel as though the women aren't one. Anyway, that's it. We could have, actually could have a whole section on Dorothy L. Says because what people might not know is she sort of runs parallel to the Inklings um, because she's also doing similar things to Charles Williams. She's writing plays for the Canterbury Festival, like T.S. Eliot and Charles Williams. Um, she's doing theology uh, like C.S. Lewis. So she's a really interesting parallel figure. But anyway, uh, we'll put her aside because she isn't that, and it, she isn't big for Tolkien, I don't think. So, you know, we'll, we'll move her to one side. Um, so I think wrapping this up here, and again, I'll reiterate that the best thing anyone can do listening to this is actually go and read the detail of your very well-argued book. And another thing I would just mention about it is your own clarity of writing is that there's a summary of what is said at the end of every chapter. It's a student's dream. So, uh, or somebody who might've forgotten, um, they can go back and, and see what you've talked about in each chapter, which is very kind of you. Thank you for writing your book like that. Uh, and I, I absolutely loved it, really enjoyed it. Um, I've, I have given you a little bit of warning, Holly, um, but let's see if we can uh, do our next thing, which is we always end with a segment where we look at all the fantasy worlds out there from film and television and books, poetry, whatever. You could even pick up an artwork, a, a painting, and say, where in all the fantasy world is the best place to have this this experience. And because we spent some time thinking about boys' own adventures, so let's take away the kind of empire aspect of it, but, you know, the sort of kid going out on their own, having a rip-roaring time, where do you think is the best place in all the fantasy worlds for a child, as opposed to a hobbit, for a child to actually go on adventure? Well, I, I gave I gave some thought about this, um, and I was thinking initially. Well, I might put forward voyaging on the Don Treader in Lewis's Narnia. Yeah, very good. Be very fun. That that is my probably my personal favorite of of the Narnia books. It's such a great story. Um, but you know, considering that we have been talking about Arthur Ransom, you know, and we know we know that Tolkien admired Ransom. I might plump for a slightly modified version of of fantasy and say. I think it would be great fun to, you know, to go and and visit um Wildcat Island with the with the swallows and the Amazons and and have a summer of of pretending to be pirates or whatever or mountaineers or whatever their uh their latest um adventure would be or for instance there's winter holiday where they uh they pretend to be polar explorers and in a sense that would be the 
great boy zone fantasy. Um, girls are also invited, which is nice. And I think Tolkien would appreciate that, especially with a daughter. Um, boys and girls adventure. And there's excitement. There's a bit of drama and danger, but there's also a sense of safety uh, because you know, nothing, nothing terrible happens to these, to these children. And, and that's, that's rather pleasing. Um, adult books, terrible things can happen to the characters, um, as they do, for instance, in, in the Lord of the Rings. Um, and even in the Hobbits, characters die. Um, but in the world of the Swallows and Amazons, you can just have a rip roaring holiday adventure <laughs> and, uh, have nice things to eat for tea. So I'm thinking about this, all sorts of options have come up to me, you know, like, you know, Peter Pan, another, um Edwardian story um but actually to get the flavor of this world of the boy zone which was came out of Victorian period I think actually an adventure in the Indiana Jones world is actually quite close to what these were doing but in a bit more acceptable world because you know Indiana Jones famously say it belongs in a museum um and that idea of sort of going and going into pyramids to have adventures seems to me the best place to have an adventure. Um, like that little uh, that boy actor who's just now won his Oscar m- many years later in the Temple of Doom. You could sort of come alongside Indiana Jones and have an adventure. Um, thank you so much, uh, Holly, uh, for for taking us through that, and um, yeah, for bringing Tolkien up to date and making us remember that he was an early adopter of that top technology, the tape recorder. Um, So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace, starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and Get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.